Welcome to Walk in the Truth Podcast. Today, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, brings a message in the Origin series that helps answer the five most important questions in life. How you live today depends on how you answer these questions. Here's John Metter with a teaching on the five questions. You have your Bibles this morning? We're in our Origin series and we're in Genesis chapter three today. Genesis chapter three, the title of the message is The First Sin. So this will be exciting today, The First Sin. And Genesis chapter three. You know, if you've been walking with us through the book of Genesis, you know that we've been hitting the mountain peaks of of theology and truth, and we've we've uncovered a lot of first in the scripture. They've all been very, very important. But we've been answering amazing questions. Genesis chapter one is a chance to answer the most important questions on the planet. Who is God? What is truth? Who was I created to be? Last week, we looked in Genesis chapter two at the theology of gender, the theology of sexuality, the theology of marriage. What did God design from the beginning? And now we're gonna be looking at Genesis three at what I call a catastrophic divide, a huge divide that takes place in Genesis three and is still present between God and man. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Colorado and spending some time in a, a wonderful home there in the mountains. And uh, much of what we did from day to day was drive. We enjoyed driving together. So uh, we got in my truck and we drove the Continental Divide in several different ways. One of those roads was what's called Trail Ridge Road, which is 12,000 feet above sea level. And it's a paved road that many people go on and it has no guardrails and it has nothing to keep you from going off into the cliffs below. It's pretty exciting. Keeps everybody awake as you drive Trail Ridge Ride. But when you go into a little bit of study about what the, what the Continental Divide is all about, it's very interesting because the Continental Divide of the United States of America also takes place in Canada all the way to Alaska and all the way to South America. And the great divide or the Continental Divide is that high mountain peaks series of, of peaks that go from north to south. And it determines the direction that water flows either towards the Pacific or towards the Gulf of Mexico and later on the Atlantic. The snow that mounts on the mount, the snow that, uh, that, that melts on the mountaintops goes down either towards the Pacific or towards the Gulf of Mexico, depending on what side of the Continental Divide it's on. It's really kind of amazing that all the massive water flows in America right there at that point have their dividing point, one direction or the other. Just a few steps this way and all the water flows towards the Gulf of Mexico or towards the Atlantic. Just a few steps this way and it all flows towards the Pacific. It is a great divide. And it really has a great deal to do with what I'm talking about today. Because in Genesis chapter three, we find Adam and Eve taking just a few steps in a different direction from God. And everything in their life from that moment on flowed away from God and away from God's design. You want to know what that looks like. Please stand with me as we read Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the first 13 verses today. And these 13 verses will reveal a great deal about this divide, about temptation, about the first sin. It opens up with these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We'll end it there. Father, today in Jesus' name, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you'll illuminate it, shine the light on it. And shine the light on this word in our minds and our hearts as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Uh, God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. So many firsts in the book of Genesis, aren't there? I mean, everything is a first in the book of Genesis, right? The first dividing of the water and the land, the first, the first uh, animals, the first fish in the sea, the first clouds, the first beast crawling on the planet, the first fruit trees coming up. We tried to imagine a few weeks ago the beauty of that Garden of Eden and what exactly that looked like. It must have been mesmerizing and amazing what God had created and placed Adam and Eve in, a beautiful place. But as we read Genesis chapter 3, we move into a place beyond what God created and we look at the things that man creates. The first doubt, the first selfish thought, the first deception, the first choice, leading to the first sin. I mean, the first divisive steps from God, they take place right here, where they move away from that mountaintop experience that God has given them, and they begin to move in a different direction away from God. It really inspires my confidence in God and diminishes my confidence in man. And it should do that for you as well. Because God is the only one we can rely on, the only one we can trust, but every time from the beginning of the Garden of Eden, the beginning of mankind, we just make the wrong choices and we move in the wrong direction. Today's text lets us see how it all unfolds. The so first I want you to note in this text, the presence of an enemy. The presence of an enemy. It says in verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And all of a sudden, there's this unusual creature that makes his appearance in the garden. Now it's unusual in that this is the first creature besides man and woman that's communicating, he's talking. And he's saying things. So it begs the question, who is this snake? And where does it come from? And to this point here, 
We don't get the answer to it till later on in the scripture. And by the way, we need to read all of scripture to be able to see all the secrets of the early part of scripture as well. But we do know some things about this serpent. And here are some things that we know about this serpent. It's clear that this serpent is unusual. And it's clear that this serpent is hostile to God. Because at this point in the garden, there's nothing but harmony. Nothing but joy. They're naked and not ashamed. The man and his wife are together. They, they see how God has created them to be together. And they look at all of creation that God has raised up and placed them into. And they have nothing to do except rejoice and, and just glorify God. Their very first full day on earth is a day of resting and rejoicing in what God has done until this moment in the garden when all of a sudden all the good things and all of the very good things began to move towards doubts and dissatisfactions and disobedience. So who is this creature that enters into the garden so boldly and began to subvert what God has made for Adam and Eve and for all that would come after them? You know, as you read your whole Bible, you're gonna find glimpses as to who this serpent is. In fact, if you go to Isaiah chapter 14, we have a very vivid description of who Satan is and who this serpent is. Now, I want you to look in your Bibles at Isaiah chapter 14, a few verses there. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now you need to remember this text as we walk through Genesis chapter three because this is the identity of that fallen created angel who rebelled from God in heaven and was cast out of heaven. We know him as Lucifer. We know him as Satan. He's the adversary because that's how he acts and that's what he does. Now, since all the angels are created beings, this occurs sometime between the creation of the earth and the heavens and the clouds and this moment of temptation that we read in Genesis chapter 3. And if you keep reading the scriptures all the way to the end of Revelation, you'll find that Jesus actually names this serpent by saying, this is the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And now in the garden, this fallen angel, this deceiver angel takes on the embodiment of a serpent and carries on a dialogue with Adam and Eve. And his goal is to oppose God's plan, to oppose God's ways and to subvert everything that God says. He begins his deceptive work by focusing on the very first human beings in a perfect environment, and it continues to this day. Now, I've got good news for you, but it's, it's gonna be a little bit later in the path, and that is one day God deals with Satan fully and completely and eternally, and aren't you gonna be glad about that? But until that time, he still has power to tempt, to sway us away from God, to cause us to take steps away from God's design off that mountain peak where he has designed for us to walk on and down the mountainside in the wrong direction. So as we look at this deceiver today, we wanna to look at how he works and he always works in a predictable way. This first temptation, this first sin in the Garden of Eden is a, is a prototype for how you and I deal with temptation and sin today. It's really important for you to pay attention when I talk about the path of sin. 
Genesis 3 talks about the path of sin, the path of temptation. And isn't it just like God to give us a warning about how temptation will occur and how sin will occur? It's almost like God is saying to us and all of those that read the Bible, look, if you want a, a forewarning, if you want a, an understanding of how temptation is going to unfold in your life, if you want to have a little bit of a heads up of how you'll be tempted to sin, this is it right here. Because I don't know of a passage that deals with temptation more plainly in a more step-by-step -step way than this text right here at the very beginning. So God prepares us through the revealing of this first temptation, this first step of sin, and we learn how they were enticed to go their own way and reject their creator. And it's really amazing when you think about they're standing on the mountaintop of creation. They're on the pinnacle of being with God and, and understanding that intimacy and that knowledge of God, and yet it's still they take steps away from God down the mountain in the wrong direction. What do those paths look like? What do those steps look like? First of all, step one is to question the truth. To question the truth. In verse one, we see the serpent talking. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. And the very first thing you notice about this text is that the serpent, the enemy, is talking and he's talking to the woman. It's really kind of amazing. He's asking questions like, is it really true what God said? Questions like, did God really say that? Are you sure? Why? You know, every temptation begins with a question mark. It begins with, what's wrong with it? Or why shouldn't I do that? And Satan's always gonna question God's authority. He's always gonna question God's ways. And sometimes somebody poses a question that makes us wonder, well, why can't I just get away with that? Other people do it. Why can't I go that way? And that's exactly how it's unfolding here in the questioning of the truth. By the way, Satan is behind every, every voice that questions truth in your life. You don't need a serpent talking to you to know that Satan is working through ideas and thoughts and statements. Temptation is not as obvious as a serpent talking to you hanging off a tree, right? Sometimes it's subtle and deceitful, but the reality is it's always going to question the word of God. That's why it's important to know that, that Satan speaks through serpents, but he also speaks through false doctrine, through temptations, through other people, through our desires, by words and thoughts placed in our mind by almost every avenue of communication. And here in the Garden of Eden, something very dangerous is happening the woman is actually talking and conversing with the serpent. It's her first mistake. It's one thing to listen to somebody questioning God's word. It's another thing to carry on a dialogue with them, reasoning with them. And really what happens is she begins to reason on the side of the serpent. One commentator made it like this. He said, the serpent succeeded in drawing the woman's attention to another possible interpretation of what God said. Oh, I wish I could tell you the number of people that are in that boat today who are looking for any other possible interpretation about something that God has said, don't go there, don't do that, and yet they're looking for a way out of that. And even when she dialogues with the serpent, with the adversary, when she recounts what God says, she removes details from the conversation of what, what God's command was. She removes the idea of the generosity of God. You can eat from all of the trees of the garden except this one. She, she removes the idea of urgency out of 
the conversation because God says, don't touch it, don't eat of it, lest you die. So we question the truth, step one. And at this point, she's already began to lean towards sin. Step two, we deny the truth. In verse four and five, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want you to notice the, the quick jump from just asking a question to making a bold declaration of denial. And that's what happens. Satan is making this bold declaration. That's not true. God said you'll die, but that's not true. That surely will not happen. And I can just see the reasoning going on in Adam and Eve's mind at this moment. Well, what he says is right, because after all, if, if God kills us, who will be there to multiply and replenish the earth, right? I mean, there won't be any more humans if, if we die. So God's not gonna kill us, and, and so, so it must be okay to do this. Maybe what the serpent is saying is not so bad after all. Reality is that when we begin to deny the truth, we don't do it outright, but we reinterpret it. Or we change something about what we understand to be true or we begin to doubt it. And our minds thought like this, well, I want to do it, but I shouldn't to. I want to, and I'm going to rationalize it. I'm going to explain it away. You know, when we face temptation, we talk ourselves into disobedience by minimizing the severity of it or by minimizing the penalty of it. This is not going to hurt as bad as it seems that it will hurt. And we begin to rationalize away the idea that it's actually a sin, but more of a misunderstanding. Maybe people just misunderstand what God is asking. Surely it must be. Why would this be sin? Why would God bring these circumstances? Why would we die? So Satan's bringing an argument that many people have today in deconstructing what God said and meant to interpret it where it's more acceptable to our own desires. Isn't that what our culture does today? Isn't that kind of the direction of the world? Flowing away from God, by the way, and not in the direction of God, asking, questioning, deconstructing, and they're progressive in their thinking, they're just not biblical. Folks, that's part of the temptation. That's part of the tempter. So all these things are unfolding here and they're beginning to deny the truth. And then step number three, replacing the truth. So here's what you read in verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. As you look at those words on the screen, you'll notice the highlighting of a few words that have to do with her feelings and the things she was thinking. The tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable to make one wise. And that's what this third step is really all about. This third step of replacing the truth is to change the focus from the creator's truth to creation's desire. Now last week we looked in Romans chapter one and we looked at several verses in Romans one where it says that a group of people began to deny God sexually and deny what he said sexually and began to move in their own directions. And the phrase used there is that they began to worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. In other words, what mattered is what the creature felt, what the creature wanted instead of what their creator told them and how the creator created them. 
But it's a pretty big deal when we began to replace the truth like that. And when we move further and further away from absolute truth, the more radical we make decisions based on something we feel that may be here for a little while, but not long. And we make those decisions based on something other than truth. John later on wrote about temptation in 1 John chapter 2. It's so great. It talks about the difference between thinking in an eternal way and thinking in a temporary way. Here's what he says. He says, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Think about those things. Desires, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Now, when you read those praises, you now know where that point of decision is. This is precisely the point at which choices are made and sin is embraced. The choice made by Adam and Eve was not inevitable, but became that way when they began to reason independently from God. They were in a perfect environment. They did not have to sin, but that's what they did. And for you, you need to know today, this is the tipping point of life. This is the tipping point of all decision-making where you begin to question what God said, deny what God said, and then replace what God said with your feelings, your emotions, and the things that you filter through your mind the way you do with whatever sources you listen to. That is the tipping point. And we begin to move further and further away from God to the point of simply disobeying him. And I describe this tipping point as a time when we consider sin more and we spend less time considering God. When we're thinking about sin more than we're thinking about God. We're thinking about what we want more than what we're thinking about when it comes to God. And what happens is that sin's attraction, its allure grows and increases when we give it space and time. That's why Jesus said, don't even lust after a person in your own heart. Why? Because you're focusing on what ultimately you cannot have and still be in obedience to God. So Eve's focusing on this with her desires. It looks good to her. It seems desirable to make one wise. And notice how quickly the story moves from Eve's focus to Eve's disobedience. And she actually begins to see this fruit in an entirely different light. You know, sometimes we put a bright lens on and we look at a situation and we don't see it the way God wants us to see it. I've got a pair of sunglasses with me here today. It's a very unusual set of sunglasses. I bought this pair of sunglasses when I was playing golf in West Texas a few months ago, and it was incredibly hot, 106 degrees every day, no wind, the sun was beating down upon us in a, in a hot, hot, heavy humidity. And, uh, and so some guy in the clubhouse, some enterprising Clubhouse employee, super salesman, sold me a pair of sunglasses that would help me with my golf game. <laughs> Talk about gullible, I bought into it. And the unusual thing about these sunglasses, it's not a typical gray shade, but it's, a, it's an amber type lens where you can see the movement on the green, you know, the highs and the lows of the green, so you can putt better. So I bought these sunglasses, and sure enough, when I put them on, everything was more beautiful. The greens were more green, the blues were more blue, the whites were brighter whites, and I could, I could see the undulating surface of the green. I could actually tell where I needed to putt. Didn't have any help for me when it actually came to putting, but I could see where I was going wrong. <laughs> but everything looked better with these sunglasses. 
you look better with these sunglasses. <laughs> and I looked in the mirror, I look better with these sunglasses. But these sunglasses do not give me a picture of reality. I'm looking at things through colored lenses. And the contrasts are stronger and brighter. They're more attractive, but they're not real. That's what's going on in Eve's life. She looks at the fruit that God said in black and white terms, you'll die. And she said, but it's so good looking. It's desirable to make one wise. I can't wait to taste it. Look how beautiful it is in comparison with everything else in the garden. And she had those lenses on as she ate the fruit and sinned. But the moment she sinned, she saw what she had done. And all of a sudden, it wasn't as beautiful because shame and guilt and nakedness and regret came into our lives. You see, we live life sometimes with these kind of lenses on, thinking everything's going to be fine. I mean, after all, it's so attractive, and, and, it, and it fits so well with what everybody else is saying in the world. And, and after all, if everybody else can do that, why can I not do that? But if you're wise enough to take the lenses off, you'll know why. You'll see reality again. It's not as alluring. It's not as attractive. It's not as appealing. It's not beneficial at all. But right now, Eve is seeing what she wants to see, the appealing part, and she's missing the real part and the penalty and the shame and the separation. Be sure you're looking at every temptation with clarity. Be sure your eyes are not being deceived. Make sure you see not only the act that you're considering, but every penalty and every possible complication that could come on the other side of that. Otherwise, you are deceived, just like she was. So step three is that reje replacing, uh, rejecting the truth after denying the truth, replacing the truth. By the way, um, when we question God's truth and we elevate self and we embrace the no absolute truth idea, we really move into a category from which it's really difficult to come back. We open ourselves up to any ideas, all ideas about religion or morals or law or education or marriage or morality. And when that happens in an individual, it's called deception. But when it's happening in a culture, we call it relativism. Now, relativism is kind of a, a term that is, uh, it's been around for a while. The Wikipedia, the secular definition of it is an important definition. It says relativism is the concept that points of view have no absolute truth or validity having only relative subjective value according to the differences in perception and consideration. In other words, what you think is truth and what I think is truth, even though they're diametrically opposed, can still be truth because all truth is relative, which is a lie. Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. It's either true or it's not. It's not any of these shades in between. So relative truth teaches that when it comes to moral choices, people can do their own thing. Relativism changes the rules based on whim or convenience or culture. It says there are no rules but mine and dramatically impacts how people live. And I'm gonna submit to you a, a document and I'm gonna submit to you something that you are knowledgeable about. I present to you 2022 America. This is the result of relative thinking. Everywhere you look, everywhere you listen, we've moved away from truth. And how did it all begin? It all began right here in the garden with the first sin and the first temptation and that first adversary to God. The serpent of old is what started this whole movement, by the way. 
And they are one and the same with what's happening today. And our sin literally is the result of considering truth to be relative rather than absolute. It's so easy. Someone the other day asked me this question as we were talking about the text. If Eve could so easily sin in a perfect world, could we not easily fall in an imperfect world? By the way, how many of you know you live in an imperfect world? Would you raise your hand? You know it's imperfect. It's messed up. If she fell in the perfect world, how easy it is it for us to get the wrong idea about truth in an imperfect world? And my answer to you is, it's extremely easy. And so that's why the scripture warns us. Step four, we're talking about steps into temptation, steps away from God's best in our life. Step four, forget the truth, forget the truth. Because say you question the truth and then you deny the truth and then you replace the truth and after a period of time, you forget it. In verses seven through 10, the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. When he came looking for them, Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam said, I was afraid. Nakedness, shame, hiding from their sins, separated from God and in destruction. They're now in an entirely different world. They're beginning to live in a very, very different way. It's broken, it's fallen, it's cursed. And they have seemingly forgotten the intimacy and the closeness of creation, the goodness and the generosity of God, all that God had provided for them as he placed them in the garden. And they're forgetting everything God gave them. And I have to tell you today, I see that in people's lives almost every day where people step by step walk away from truth and soon live in a reality where there's no awareness of God, no awareness of right or wrong, no memory of truth. You know, you read the Bible long enough, you're going to find it happening in several nations that were people who were supposedly the people of God. The book of Judges The last chapter, the last verse is one of the most revealing verses in the Bible. And it says this in that verse, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Wow. I'm telling you, that's not a great place to be. But that happens over and over in our lives. It happens over and over in nations today. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So all the more reason to be warned and to be prepared for temptation towards sin. And finally, if you keep reading this this text that we've been reading, you get to the pain of consequences. Notice what it says in verse 11, and he, that is God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It's amazing that in one sentence, in one phrase, God clarifies everything that happened in the garden. And it's all about, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? It's that simple. Did you disobey me? Now, regardless of who tempted whom, regardless of who sinned first, all that is just sideways energy. The bottom line is disobedience and the first sin. Guilt, shame, blame, then the curse. Now, the consequences of the first sin lay the pattern for the consequences of sin since that time. Listen to me very carefully. You can choose the sin, but you cannot choose the consequences. And they're always the same. Separation, shame, guilt. And you drive a wedge between yourself and God. The grief in the garden that day is a documented next. But the grief and pain passed down to all humanity is written in a history of 6,000 years 
of human history. Read the Bible. But even go further than that, read the history books of the ages. And you're going to find documented the picture of this separation, this heartbreak, this sin, rebellion, hatred, and bloodshed. Now, I really hate ending a message on such a bad note. But Genesis chapter 3 ends at this point in a really, really bad note. It doesn't end, in, it doesn't end well because of the consequences of sin. But, but I do need to tell you that God will still win the day. Did you hear me? God will still win the day. It's bleak, it's dark, it's sinful, it's separated, but God will still win the day. He will. If you just keep reading, and we'll be there next week, you find right after the documenting of the first sin, there's a first mention of the first and final solution. And that final solution would be He will send a king. He will bruise the head, crush the head of the serpent. He will send one who will be the Messiah, who will build a bridge from mankind's sinfulness to God's holiness and the peak where we started. It's going to be a powerful picture that we read and and know about. Jesus himself will build a bridge back to God, cross the great divide, cross sin, cross rebellion, and he builds that bridge with his broken body and his shed blood. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the good news is all about. Jesus Christ can bridge that massive divide between ourselves and God. And he sends his son, Jesus, to do that. Here's a verse you need to walk out with. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. You know why I know that I'm not going to receive the consequences of sin in my life? Because by his wounds, I was healed. You know how you can know that you're not going to have all those consequences of sin in your life? Because by his wounds, you were healed. If you put your faith and trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. Boy, you do need to remember today It's not only that he saves us and he pays for our sin, he builds that bridge back, but you need to be aware that there is an adversary. There is such a thing as temptation. There is such a thing as sin and deception. And you need to be forewarned that it's always the wrong way to go. It'll never bring the promise that it proclaims it will bring. It will never be as beautiful, never be as colorful, never be as alluring, never be as magnificent as it promises. It'll bring you away from the God who put you on a mountaintop through his son Jesus and promises you all things pertaining to life and godliness. Do not walk away from that one. Stay with that one. You know, today we may need to make some decisions. You may need to make a decision in your life. One of the decisions, the most primary decision for you to make today is to, is to make sure that you're on the bridge that Jesus built. Make sure you put your faith and trust and confidence in Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. It took place on the cross and he did that for you. And you must put your faith and trust in him. People are not saved because they know about it. They're saved from sin because they place trust in him and in that work on the cross. Today, if you've never done that, if there's never been that moment in your life where you made a decision to trust Jesus today, I urge you to do it today. We have decision stations that are, that are stationed as you leave today. And when you see that decision station lit up and you see somebody standing behind the table, they're there to talk to you about decisions. 
that you need to make. I urge you to make decisions today that'll put you on that bridge that Jesus builds himself. I have a second appeal to you today, and that second appeal is that we have a guest reception center that I would like to invite you to, to continue a spiritual conversation to tell you more about what makes this church different and what we want you to know about Cross City Church. I'd love to visit with you, welcome you to our services. And you can do that in just a short space of time. We spend about five or 10 minutes in there, just outside the center exit doors and across the hallway. There's a third appeal I make to you, and that is invite someone to come back with you next week. We actually have an open house next week. You have invite cards that are available for you. This is the chance for people to see what God is doing here, what's going on around us, and to be able to hear a message that will point them to Christ. And next week, we're going to point them to Christ. And I want to encourage you to reach out to those around you. Such an important opportunity for us to do that with a world that needs answers. And we have them in the Word of God, don't we? I am so glad we do. Would you stand with me? And would you bow your heads for just a moment as we have this closing word of prayer? Father, my gratitude to you for the incredible truths you give us in Genesis 3. Lord, I'm so thankful for the bridge that you built to you through Jesus for all of us, because all of us are in need of a Savior. All of us are in need of forgiveness. Father, today, my prayer is that we will be bold and courageous enough to make decisions that would be spiritual decisions in trusting you. And Father, that we'd be bold enough to reach out to others around us with an invitation to hear good news. Father, use this message today in the lives of all present. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.